Hello, all listeners, and welcome to this episode of Hacker Talk. My name is Philip, and I will be your host for today's episode. What if I told you there's a new way that you can find security vulnerabilities in your code base using something called CodeQL? But what is CodeQL? How do we use it? What is the fuss about? In this episode of Hacker Talk, we're joined by Alvaro Munoz. Alvaro is a security researcher known for his work with deserialization bugs. He's a speaker at various conferences, part of GitHub security team, and our Hacker of the episode. Welcome to Hacker Talk, Alvaro Munoz. How are you doing today? Thank you. Very excited to be here today. Awesome. So for all our listeners that have no idea about who you are, how did you get into security and software? And uh, was there any light bulb moment where you realized like, wow, security is pretty cool. If I have to go back to that moment, then I have to go back to my teenager days, I guess, back in high school, I guess. And I was playing with computers that was back in the nineties. I am old, I know. Um, but at that, at those times there was no public access in internet, at least in, in Spain where I'm from. So basically I was playing around with PBS. Uh, so if you are old enough to know about PBSs, I think it stands for bulletin, bulletin board systems. Uh, those were basically your computers that you were, you were sharing or setting access to with other people via um, modems, basically telephone lines. So you have to uh, call into some other people uh, houses and basically get respond by these BBS systems. And then you were able to browse through a number of files that were served. And then I was visiting some of these um, BBS for hacking information because I was kind of interested. I learned how to program in basic using a Microsoft MSX back in the day my parent told me uh, my father told me and then i was very interested when i got my first uh, like 486 computer and then my my pentium and that was running on on windows right and i remember that i was when i wanted to learn about hacking because that sounds sounded very interesting and very cool to me back in these teenager days then uh, <laughs> i found many information in this bbs about uh, unix uh, commands and unix operating systems solaris etc but i didn't get access to any of those systems at my home lab which was basically this pentium and then i learned how to hack myself into CompuServe and get access to internet get more docs more um you know, uh, documentation about this open system. And finally, I was able to get some, some accounts in some servers in the US, I think, where I was able to play with all those commands that I was learning about from these um, manuals and tutorials that I found in. So I kept learning about programming, learning about different languages. And then basically that's where I started uh, college and I kind of forget about this interest or I kind of switch interest into other topics like music, uh, guitars and things like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. So back when I was finishing college, I, I got this interest back again and, and kind of started my work in related with um, computers, but it was not related with security at all. I was working in IT world and and then at some point I I learned that my the company I was working for that was HP at that time was acquiring a security company called Fortify. And then that was my chance to jump into Fortify and start working with static analysis and application security at like a professional level. And that's where I guess that everything like started more seriously, I guess. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, no, I remember that back in the day when I started college, I had this documentation about that I learned from this BBS and I knew about things like uh, John the Crack and John the Reaper, sorry. And, and then I used that in the first year of university to get access to, I don't know if I'm supposed to, to talk about this, but let's say that I was able to get access to the labs and, and play with those systems that I didn't have access to in my, in my home. But yeah, so that was like the, the starting of my career at InfoSec. And then I, I've never broke the law, I guess, uh, except maybe for that specific episode. <laughs> 
But um, but yeah, then I started like uh, playing CTFs, and I think that CTFs has been like a really uh, important point in in developing my skills, learning about security, and really becoming very interested in security. And I started playing CTFs by myself. Uh, at some point, I was contacted by at that time the most important uh, Spanish. CTF team, the Intrepids, that were always at the top of the CTF score uh, leaderboard. So they were like very good and they are still very good. And I learned a lot with them. So before joining the Intrepids, I was basically doing like all kinds of security related challenges in the CTFs from exploitation to reverse engineering to um, web, crypto, everything. Uh, when I joined Intrepid, I guess that I specialized in, in web and like high level languages. And then that's where I basically developed my interest and my specialization. And that's where I basically end up working. That's dope. That's dope. Do you still do CTFs? Not that much since I got two kids and they basically took all the free time that I used to have. So I don't know if maybe one day when they are older uh, i will be able to have like free time again but so far it seems like a dream to me <laughs> to be able to have like a, a whole future yeah hopefully in the future i will be able to that's that's so fun yeah cts are so fun but so sometimes you spend you spend hours and hours and hours on the challenge yes sometimes mm -hmm. yeah i always recommend people approaching to me and asking how should i um, get started with InfoSec or application security. And I don't know, that depends on, on the people, on the specific person, for example, the way that they learn or the way that they get motivated. But for me, what worked was uh, CTS because I really learned how to think out of the box, uh, how this lateral thinking that they call. Um, and that's what got me so many vulnerabilities in years after, like being able to think in not a straightforward way, try to, you know, yeah, think out of the box and, and find these malicious kind of mental models where you think how to break things other than building things. They're trying to, to develop this kind of, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very important to have because it, it makes your code completely different than you're so defensive now when you're writing code, I feel like. Mm -hmm. But how does all these roles lead to CodeQL and what is CodeQL? Well, um, basically, as I said, I started working in Fortify, which is also a static analysis vendor. And at some point in my career, I decided to move to, move to GitHub. And there I was going to basically do security research. So not really bound to any tool at all, like CodeQL or anything like that. But uh, I guess that as we say in Spain, I don't know if there is any similar saying in English, but the goat uh, goes to the mountains. So if you really like something, you try to, to do it. And that's why I started playing with CodeQL a lot in within GitHub. And today I end up leading a team of junior security researchers. We are, which are using CodeQL to find uh, vulnerabilities in open source software at scale. So yeah, back to your question, what is CodeQL? CodeQL is a static analysis uh, tool or, or solution, which will basically help you to find vulnerabilities by analyzing the source code at rest. If you want to put it that way, we are not running the source code at any moment, which from one side or one point of view, it will give you visibility into the whole source code. Uh, when you use something like black box approach, like running tools like Verb or any dynamic analysis tools, you will be able to find vulnerabilities in the code that you are able to exercise with your requests or whatever. But uh, there will be many vulnerabilities that you may not exercise because you didn't trigger correctly and you want to be able to trigger them if you don't have visibility in the source code. If you don't see that the source code is checking for this um, query parameter and if it's present, then it's going to do this or that. And then you want to be able to trigger that uh, dynamically. So I always found like a static analysis more complete in that, in, that, in that sense, in the sense that 
you have full visibility and sometimes you even find bugs that then you are not able to trigger because whatever there may be um, bugs in some places in the code which cannot be exercised from the outside from the attack surface but um yeah i guess that that's the the upside of static analysis the visibility into the whole uh, code base and the downside is that it's a static so basically you are not running the code you have to emulate uh what the code could be doing if it would be run so in some places in some languages like java which is a, sta um, a statically typed language this is kind of a very accurate analysis in some other languages like such as javascript maybe or python uh, you have to do to do a lot of assumptions about what's the type of this object um, in java you always know the type but for example in, in python you have to do assumptions and based on those assumptions you will have like better results or worse results and and yeah that's basically codeql is a platform to uh, perform uh, static analysis is um used a lot to do what we call variant analysis so basically imagine you are a security engineer you receive um a report from a external security researcher telling you that they found a vulnerability in your code and then you can take that code understand what was the vulnerability and then model that with codeql model that means that express the same pattern that this vulnerability uh, is defined uh, for and then express that in codeql so you will be able to run that query and find similar patterns um, appearing in the very same code base so variants of that other uh, bug or once that you have that uh, bug pattern model you can run that at scale on like hundreds of thousands of repos and then be able to quickly scale and find vulnerabilities in thousands of repos so you gotta be good at writing queries for the thing yeah and this can be a little bit not problematic but uh codeql is a declarative language so people is more used to work with um uh, imperative languages so languages where to define how you want things to happen right in if you think about java python javascript all of those are uh, imperative languages where you tell the program what you want to do uh, like loop through all these uh, items in this array and this for each of them do this or that check if they start with this prefix and, and then if they start to this or that that's like following a receipt and a declarative language is completely the opposite you just specify what you want instead of the how and then uh, the compilation engines will basically just uh, figure out how to connect the database tables or how to get the information that you want. And if you think about a declarative language, you will probably come up with SQL, where you say like, okay, I want to uh, all the users where the username is, I don't know, uh, Philip, and the last name is whatever, and the age is uh, whatever. And then you will get those results and then you don't how you don't need to tell this uh, SQL engine how to uh, join those tables, how to uh, get the information from them. Black magic for you. Exactly. And you will just get a list of the users and you will just express in a very expressive language, like select uh, from users, like select the username, the age and the address. And then it may connect three different um, of tables or whatever it's implemented in the back end of the database and it will get the the results for you and codeql is exactly that you don't say you don't tell the engines how to get you the the stuff that you are after but actually you tell them like okay i want all the method calls to a method call execute for example or eval where the argument to this method comes from untrusted data from data that can be controlled by a user. And, and that's it. That's return me all the places in the code that are called eval with untrusted data. And then CodeQL will return you all those places. So you can use CodeQL to find vulnerabilities. Like for example, modeling a vulnerability, like a SQL injection, like for example. Or you can also use CodeQL to explore a code base. If you are into uh, code audits and code review, then uh, if you are faced with like, 10,000 lines of code, and then you don't even know where to start, where to uh, start looking and for vulnerabilities. But with CodeQL, you can start like 
asking questions to the um, to the code base, right? Like, what are the places where untrusted data enters this application? Where what are the places where I don't know deserialization operations are performed? No matter if we have evidences that this uh, the data being deserialized is coming from untrusted data or not, I want to get all these places where untrusted data is being, or sorry, data has been deserialized or all the places where uh, IO operations are performed, like files have been opened, read, or written to all the places. And then you can ask questions about the code. And then as a manual code reviewer, you can use that information to drive your audits and be like more effective, more, uh, that really good overview. I think it's a really cool approach to it. Absolutely. And being able to find, like, like you said, evolve is, it's a very, very bad feature. Uh, how long have you been in CodeQL? Well, I joined GitHub like almost three years ago. Uh, so January will be the three years. And I started like really playing with CodeQL like maybe two years ago. And yeah, I can tell that even though the learning curve is a little bit steep, um, once that you get to the basics of working with a declarative language, which you are, you may not be used to. And one that you get uh, used to working with, um, yeah, expressing these patterns in a declarative language, then it's much easier than you may expect. So I think that, yeah, you need to stick around for the time that it takes to learn the basics, and then you will get rewarded with uh, a very powerful tool to find bugs, to model other people's bug. Um, this, I have done this a lot of times, like some, someone reports a CVE and then during the weekend, then uh, Monday, I come back to, to work and then I model that CVE with a CodeQL query. I run it on all GitHub repos and I find like many vulnerabilities that we report to the maintainers. And Amazing. that gives you a really powerful tool. I mean, I can't imagine another tool that runs at this scale. Like dynamic analysis is great for when you are focusing on a single application, but if you want to run that as, at scale, like thousands of thousands of applications, just thinking about having those thousands of applications up and running, like setting them up, and that's something that is even impossible. And with the static analysis, with, uh, for example, languages like an interpreted language, you don't even need to compile them, like Python, JavaScript, Ruby. Uh, you can just throw them to the CodeQL extractor, and that will basically take the source code. It will extract what is called the AST, the abstract syntax tree, which is a, basically an abstract a representation of the source code. And that will store that AST in a CodeQL database, and then you are ready to query that database with whatever queries you want to run on them. Okay. So if I want to do this on a local, uh, on a, on a local repository, I can use, I can just set up CodeQL with a, with a repo. But what if I want to like, what if I write a new cool exploit and I want search entire GitHub for this? How can I as a, like a consumer or private person do that? Um, so this is still possible in lgtm.com, which what is lgtm.com. Well, lgtm.com is a platform that unfortunately is going to be deprecated. So if you want to play with lgtm.com, you have to rush. Uh, basically, the idea is that in lgtm.com, you have a CodeQL query console. So you can just go to this site, go to the query console and start writing CodeQL and then running those queries on all the hundreds of thousands of open source repos that we have uh, onboarded in lgtm. And, and then, um, there are some scripts, uh, out there. Um, so if you are interested in uh, getting access to these, um, scripts to run these queries at scale on these hundreds of repos, then, uh, you have to visit our Slack channel that I will provide you with a link later because I don't have it right now, but uh, it's, it's, it's private, private channel, but it's open to anyone that wants to join basically. So. Anyone that asks for uh, an invitation, they get the invitation. And then we basically discuss things about CodeQL. You can ask any question and talk directly with the CodeQL engineers, with the security uh, lab researchers that use CodeQL. So different perspective, the people that 
create and write CodeQL and the people that use CodeQL to find security vulnerabilities and just ask your questions, uh, et cetera. That's awesome. That's really useful to have a community like that. How is the, yeah, how is the user adoption of CodeQL? Is there mostly bug uh, people that use it for bug bounties or? Uh, so CodeQL has been adopted mostly in the form of code scanning. So code scanning is um, a feature that you can enable in your open source repos uh, in GitHub, uh, where basically every time that you submit a commit or a PR in your repo, then it will be automatically scanned by CodeQL, right? So in this way, if you introduce a, a security vulnerability in your source code, you will be notified as soon, or you can even make like a check and make these PR fails if they have like a code QL or code, uh, code scanning vulnerabilities. So I would say that that is the most adopted use of code QL by developers integrated into the CI's um, CD pipelines. Um, obviously there are many security researchers that are using code QL for uh, looking for vulnerabilities like we do at Security Lab. But if you look at the numbers of developers using CodeQL integrated into their um, CI, CD pipelines versus the security researchers, I would say that probably developers are using it uh, more than uh, security researchers. And that's a good thing because um, mostly static analysis are known to be a little bit noisy in terms of false positives. But CodeQL was developed with this developer-first approach where they prefer to have a false negative, so not to report something over like flooding the developers with false positives. So if with any static analysis tool, you have to move the needle between these two, like have been very accurate and just uh, report things that you know are security vulnerabilities for sure. Or if you move the needle to like what I call the researcher mode, you start getting um, more false positives and also less false negatives. And as a security researcher, I don't mind like triaging and reviewing a hundred false positives if one of them is a true positive, right? Uh, for example, if I have to review in log4j a hundred false positives and one of them is the log4j issue, like the true positive, then holy grail. that's time well spent for a security researcher. Now, from a, a developer point of view, if you receive a report and it's a hundredfold positive, the next thing that you're going to do is basically disable that tool and not run it ever again. So um, this is the reason that when running CodeQL, the default mode is running in a, in a developer first mode where it's very accurate and try to get uh, as most uh, accurate results as possible. Now, as a researcher, this is completely flexible tool. You can enable this research mode by making the analysis maybe less accurate, but also will result in less false negatives. That's good, that's good. Because yeah, you're touching on an important uh, topic here because I feel like a lot of developers, they get this type of static analysis tools and then if there's too many false positives, you have to turn them off in the CI. Um, what would you say? I know we have a lot of listeners that have, uh, they're tried to achieve similar stuff as uh, CodeQL does in their CI system, but they're using like all these type of static linters and uh, ways of describing uh, bad patterns in the code. Do you think they should just get rid of all the old linters and uh, replace their CI with CodeQL or? Well, uh, linters may be used for, for a number of reasons, like not just security, also quality, um, following some, some policies about conventions in your company or whatever. Uh, so if you're using linters for that, then, uh, obviously CodeQL may be used for that, but then you have to write all the queries for yourself. So the queries that comes bundled with CodeQL are security related and some quality related queries. Right. Uh, if you use Linterin for things like, um, you know, having some convention about, well, how to, if using single quotes or double quotes or things like that, then yeah. that's something that CodeQL is not going to. Now, uh, if you think about a static analysis, there is like a large spectrum where you can move from very simple AST gripping, right? So basically, well, you can even go, um, farther in this spectrum to just 
grab things. Um, but this is not um, useful because it will get a lot of false positives. Then you can grab the AST, which is basically you um, extract this AST uh, and then you grab things on the AST. Using this approach, you are more accurate. Like for example, if you are importing a library um, in Python with a different name, so import foo as a spar, then par you assign it to a variable and then you run a method on that variable, then a grep, a simple grep won't find that you are invoking this method on this library that you imported. But if you use a static uh, AST based grepper, then can find this kind of calls, right? Now, in the other side of the spectrum, we have like full program analysis, uh, static analysis solutions like CodeQL, which are able to perform things like data flow analysis. So following uh, user control data through the application as if you were running the application, they can perform control flow analysis. They can perform different layers of abstraction to the code and performs really accurate and precise analysis. Or you can also run things like CodeQL in a very simple way, like matching the AST. So it's up to you. Like CodeQL, you can think it as a Swiss knife where you can basically use the most powerful tools or you can just um, basically, if you want to find all the calls to a given method and just rep the AST for that, then you can just write a two lines query that will basically do that. And this will be really fast and this will integrate very well with CI CI pipelines. Now, if you want to go to the opposite side of the spectrum, with CodeQL, you have the possibility to go all the way down to the both sides or the both ends of the spectrum. And you can go to the full program analysis where you will be able to run like really powerful data flow engines and time tracking engines on your code to be able to find this kind of injection issues where you have untrusted data entering your applications in one place and then following down through multiple libraries, um, interprocedural uh, calls until they reach a sink or a place where some um, dangerous operation happens using this untrusted data. So if someone wants to get like roll after thieves and start writing query, is there any repo, repo or good queries that they can start with as an example so or? All the rip, all the queries are open source. You can just go to github.com slash github slash codeql and you will find the other queries are open source. So you can have, you can find the source code for all the queries for all the languages. So we support like, I think up to nine different languages. Um, and also if you want to start writing codeql queries, uh, there are like an bunch of learn labs in GitHub. So you can just um, uh, basically search for GitHub learning lab CodeQL, and you will have a bunch of them for different languages, like for example, JavaScript and Java, C, C++. And these learning labs are based on finding real vulnerabilities that we found in the security lab. And then we created this learning lab about how to start from scratch, not knowing or not even having CodeQL installed, install it, learning the basics, and then finding a real security vulnerability using CodeQL. So those are like really good resources to, to get started with CodeQL. Awesome. And something that also, if you want to get started in this uh, CodeQL journey, if you are looking for a motivation, <laughs> uh, um, an economic motivation, then uh, we are running this Backpanty program where if you submit a query that finds bugs in open source projects, like, or is covering a vulnerability category that is not already covered by the default rules or the default queries, then you can submit that to our Backpanty program and then get rewarded from, I think like uh, 1000 or dollar to maybe up to five, 6,000 uh, dollars, depending on the scope of the query, on the complexity of the query, etc. But I think this is a very good uh, motivation for people to learn CodeQL, use it for their own research, but also contribute those queries back to the community. So all the people that is running CodeQL uh, in open source projects can run those queries as well and then get rewarded for that. Yeah, that's awesome. Having that library of queries and just being able to, to lurk around there. 
Do you have any best uh, best practices uh, for writing queries or any like mindset that you use for writing queries to give maybe less false positives? So I have some mindset about thinking about the code in, in the way of a database. Like for example, imagine that you have a database with all the constructs in the code. So you have a table for all the method definitions, another table with all the method calls, another table with all the variables, another one with all the variable accesses. And then you are basically just uh, joining and querying those tables. That's kind of help you getting started with this declarative language uh, with CodeQL. But in terms of reducing false positives, um, this is more related with um, starting with a broad query, like for example, finding all untrusted data flowing from any untrusted source to, let's say, for example, some um, code execution syncs, right? Then if you start with that, you will find um, probably all the true positives, but you will also have some false positives because the code may go through some sanitizer nodes in the data flow graph. So some places in the code where maybe the untrusted data is checked to be an integer, for example, or maybe it's checked against an allow list and it's only allowed to be one of a certain values, then you may want to write some sanitizers to improve the, the accuracy of the query and then make it like more precise, right? So if you start like writing sanitizers, then you will start removing false positives. Um, then start like very broad, very general with the easy, Query like from source to sync. And then if you start getting false positives, then you can just refine the query and add sanitizers to exclude certain paths that flow from the source to the sync, which may sanitize the, the, the data provided by the user. How does your current setup uh, look like? How do you work with CodeQL? What IDE do you use with it? And how's your setup? <laughs> so uh, my setup is completely different from, I would say, 99% of the people using CodeQL. So I'm not a good example of, <laughs> of that, but I'm a really, like I said at the beginning of the talk, uh, I'm a kind of old person now, <laughs> and I'm really into Beam and NeoBeam to be more specific. And I developed my own um, NeoBeam plugin to work with CodeQL. So the way or the ID that I use to work with CodeQL is um, is NeoBeam. So basically I just use the terminal and NeoBeam and I write Why tests and Neo develop Beam everything. Over Beam? That's a good question. Uh, so at some point, NeoBeam was like a fork of Beam where they started developing things that Brad, which is the main maintainer of Beam, was not accepting as pull request. Things like being able to run async jobs in, in NeoBeam without blocking the whole editor. So in the past, uh, if you were running like a linter, like for example, you said you mentioned the linters, you had to wait for, this was the same process, right? So it was blocked until the linter finished and then you had your editor like blocked and you were not able to type anything until that finished. So um, Tiago Forte, I think is the name of the founder, if you want to put it this way, of the main maintainer of, of NeoBeam at that point in time. I think he says he's no longer working actively in this repo, but at this point he submitted some pull requests to Vim that were not accepted. So he decided to just fork it and create a fork where a more modern version of, of Vim would be possible. And then from there, people started contributing crazy ideas, uh, which were at that time not accepted. So I think that Vim has changed their mindset. Um, in the last year. So they are now able to run async jobs and other crazy things that are being implemented in NeoBeam, like for example, three-seater support for better highlighting, for better movements around the code, etc. They are also being ported back or implemented in, in Vim. But now these days is Vim playing the, the catch-up game with, with NeoBeam. So NeoBeam is ahead, like developing all these crazy ideas, like for example, LSP integration, like language server protocol integration to make Vim a really IT and not just a, like a text editor. And, you know, 
soon uh, after Vim implements that as well. But NeoBeam is more that's like... amazing. I, I use mm. that for uh, for Rust when I write Rust code all the time, LSP, yeah. mm. to do it remotely. It's, it's awesome. But, yeah, so think about writing this state without an LSP server, with all the lintering, uh, et cetera, that LSP provides. And with CodeQL, um, going back to, to the question, the official extension, the official ID is VS code, and you have like the official and supported, uh, CodeQL extension that will provide just the means to run the queries, to browse through the results, et cetera. Also an LSP server, but because of the way that they implemented this CodeQL extension with an LSP server, like a query server, et cetera, you can just write your plugin for a, a different text editor or a different ID. And for example, what I did is basically just to use the, L the CodeQL LSP server that is already developed and is connected to the VL code oh, extension. And I just awesome. can call it from NeoVim without make or writing like a lot of lines of code. It's very easy to integrate into NeoVim. Basically just uh, using the API almost. Yeah, basically using uh, the API for the query server and which is in charge of running the query and, and getting you the results and the uh, API for the LSP server, which will provide you with uh, errors, warnings, hints, uh, awesome. things ab um, about your query so you can get feedback for your query. Cool, cool, cool. And this is available on GitHub, right? Yeah. So the official extension, as I said, is VS Code with the VS Code extension. That's what people should be using unless they are really crazy into Vim or Emacs because we, there is another guy in, in my, my team that is the same crazy as I am with Vim, but with Emacs. And he wrote his CodeQL plugin for, for Emacs using a lot of parentheses, I guess. But, uh, but yes, you have now those, those three choices. You can also use the CLI because you can basically just write your query in notepad if you want and then just run it using the CLI where you basically define, okay, I want to run this query on this database and just run it and you get the result as JSON or as CSV or as a SARI file, which is a, a format to dump the static analysis results, which is a standard these days. And then you can just open those files with notepad if you want. What have you found so far with CoachUL? If you've been doing it for two years, you must have found a lot of bugs, but uh, do you have some highlights on some interesting bugs that you found during the way? I have found many, many bugs. I focused on analyzing Java um, and also vulnerability categories leading to remote code execution. Mm -hmm. So I have found, I would say hundreds of them. I, I really like one, which I found back in the COVID days, 2020, probably a few months after the pandemic uh, started, basically. So if you remember those days, there was these, these, we call it radar, radar COVID, which are these applications in your mobile phone. So if you got exposed to other people that were infected, you get a notification in your phones, right? Using the Android and the, and the um, iOS notification and exposure systems, basically. If you notify that you were sick and then uh, that was uploaded to a database, basically, and then if uh, anyone was around you for more than 15 minutes in closer than, I don't know, 20 meters, then you got a notification that you were exposed to the virus, right? Hmm. Remember this application? They were yeah. implemented in all countries. I think in Spain, it was called Radar COVID. Uh, but uh, I found that the server for the German implementation of this system, the backend was vulnerable to remote code execution. And the way that I found it is, well, first of all, I found uh, a new pattern leading to remote code execution. That was like a novel thing. Um, so if you were using Hibernate validators, and this was kind of funny because you were validating your data, but because you were validating your data in a certain way, you were actually making your application vulnerable to remote code execution, right? You can look for that. Um, I think the kind of the official name is like Vim validation, but yeah, I, I can even provide you with a, with a link to this article that we wrote. 
And, and then, uh, this application was validating the data that you could submit to the, uh, to the radar COVID systems. And then they were validating it, making sure that it was following certain constraints and limitations. But because they were doing that in an insecure way, you were able to trigger and get remote code execution on that German server that was, you could basically disrupt this notification system for the whole Germany. For, for the whole Germany. So that was a little bit crazy, but SAP were like the people maintaining and developing most of the code, even though it was open source, because the whole idea was to build trust on these applications because there were like certain concerns at that time that people may get spied because they were installing things on their mobile phones and they were going to be able to know where you were where you were like base or where you were located, et cetera, things like that. But uh, those applications were made open source. So everyone could see that uh, the application, the, the both the mobile application and the both end were not taking any privacy information, any sensitive information, et cetera. Uh, this application was developed by SAP and they were very quick uh, to fix the issue and, and, and publish the, the fix. So yeah, back to the code QL, I found this by modeling a pattern that I found myself. So I found it myself in Nexus, which is a Sonatype artifact repository. Mm -hmm. And then I run it on Nexus. I found a couple of instances there. And then I reported to Nexus, uh, Sonatype. Then I wrote, I model, uh, talking back to this variant analysis concept. I model this pattern using a CodeQL query, very simple one, maybe 20 lines of code. And then I run it on Nexus, I found other one that I missed. <laughs> so I reported that one as uh, well. And then I ran it on open source projects. Um, at that time, there were like 20,000 Java projects. And then I found it in many, in many projects. I, we reported the issue. And one of them was this, um, this COVID, this COVID, uh, radar system. I don't remember the name for the German implementation for the German implementation. But yeah, I would say that that one was one of the most interesting because of the impact and the, and the criticality at that time, at that point in time with, with COVID. That's awesome. That awesome. Yeah, that's pretty. How fast did they patch it? It took them like a couple of days. Um, yeah, no more than 20, uh, 48 hours, I guess. So they were very, very, very quick with that. Cool. What is that? So I guess you look at a lot of uh, uh, security vulnerabilities that get uh, released all the time. What is the latest, most interesting security vulnerability that you read? Sorry, say that again. I guess you look at uh, a lot of security vulnerabilities all the time and try to write queries for it. What's the most latest, interesting vulnerability that you read that you thought like, wow, this is a really smart, innovative way they found her? Um, so these days I'm more into managing the team that's writing, uh, CodeQL queries myself, but I've been, as I said, uh, previously during the weekend, maybe I read like a couple of blog posts, read apps about vulnerabilities that are being disclosed. Like for example, the other day, this cobalt strike vulnerability in remote code execution by some clever injection in the, um, HTML code that is being rendered in the swing components of Java. And then I, the Monday after I came back to work and I wrote a query for that and found a couple of instances of other applications that were portable. This was like a couple of weeks ago. So we are still in the process of reporting the issue, but I think that was the latest one. Other than that, I've been also modeling some um, JavaScript frameworks. Um, that we use internally at GitHub, but they are also open source. So these queries are going to be contributed back to the community. And I've been um, surprised, if you want to put it this way, by the power, how powerful a code QL is. Because as I said, I've been using other static analysis solutions in the past. And with code QL being a declarative language, I thought that it was not going to be possible to do things that it was not even possible in other solutions. So it was like out of the possibilities of a static analysis, but uh, I wanted to implement that. So I asked the engineers and they told me, yeah, yeah sure, you can do that. And they, they taught me how to do it. And I was like a mind blowing moment of, 
wow, if you can do this with CodeQL, you can basically model anything. You can even develop your own abstraction layers on top of the abstraction layers that are already provided, like the data flow or the control flow. And you can, so there is no real limit of what you can do with CodeQL. Basically, you really need to get into it uh, because it's like more advanced uh, concept. But if you get into CodeQL, you can get for granted that you will be able to model almost anything, any pattern that you may think about. I feel like CodeQL is just this new, amazing new static analysis tool. Is there any tool that you would like compare it to? Or any frame? Well, you can compare it with any other of the static analysis solutions out there. Um, I think they serve different purposes. Like, for example, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of traction with SEMgrep these days. Um, and I think SEMgrep is a great tool as what they call a guardrails enforcer. So basically, you want to make sure, like, maybe not detect a complex SQL injection flowing from this specific user control parameter in through like multiple layers of abstraction, abstraction inter-procedural calls, calling back and forth from library code, et cetera, until this untrusted data reaches a sync. I don't think that uh, SEMgrep is up to try to find these kind of vulnerabilities, but they are very good at it, enforcing things or policies like don't use, for example, uh, if this, there, there, are, there is this flow, through uh, very complex code and CodeQL can get you the whole path from the source to the sink. Same grip is more about don't use that sink from, from the start. So if they find that you're using this sink, then they don't care really about if there is an evidence of untrusted data flowing into that sink. Maybe there's a policy that you should not use this sink at all in your code. So it's like a, a guardrail that protects you and keeps you in the road. But also an, a different approach for static analysis is more located in the other end of the spectrum that we were commenting on the uh, before, uh, like repping in the AST and using that to enforce like good practices. Also, I think that uh, CodeQL as uh, recent grip doesn't require you to learn like a new language, like CodeQL is a completely new language, a declarative language that you need to, to learn. And with with SEMgrep, I think I haven't really used SEMgrep a lot, but you can just write your queries on the same language that you're querying. So if you are querying PHP, you can just write some uh, simple queries using PHP-ish code, right? And and that's kind of make it more accessible or easy to use for people that are not willing to invest into learning like a new language even though the potential of those languages is completely different and what you can do with CodeQL and what you can do with SEMgrep, but what you can do with SEMgrep at the cost of not learning a new language may be enough for some people. So yeah, I think that's... Um, How steep would you think, the, would you say the learning curve is for CodeQL? Is it like, hey, I can roll up my sleep, the sleeves and I can do it in a weekend or like two weeks of research and... Mm -hmm. So... I thought that the learning curve was very steep. Um, that was my impression. Um, but what I learned the other day was we were having um, a conversation with um, someone that ran a CTF based on CodeQL in their, their university. So they got like 30 participants and they had to solve like 10 different challenges using CodeQL. And these participants hadn't used CodeQL at all before. And then after three hours of competition, they were able to solve 90% of the challenges. Wow. So these are Our. three hours they were able to, there are like a couple of tutorials for CodeQL that, so they are the learning labs that I mentioned before about real world vulnerabilities found with CodeQL that you are guided uh, to find using CodeQL. And there, then, so there are uh, these other tutorials that are called the detective tutorials, where you use CodeQL to, um, as a detective to solve some, some uh, crimes and some mysteries, but they are not even related with a programming language. You are using mostly uh, pure CodeQL, like trying to figure out and follow hints and, and solve some, some things. Some crimes is more like a game. And they solve the three tutorials that are available plus 
a number of vulnerabilities, um, model some vulnerabilities in CodeQL in three hours. So I was really surprised. So these are students from a computer science course in Germany. 30 of them, I don't know if it's a good amount to, to draw some, some conclusions, but I was surprised because I thought the learning curve was steeper than that. <laughs> so I was. That's pretty incredible. Three hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know these people are used to CTF games. So they are into security. They are into programming languages, but they were not into CodeQL and they were able to grasp the, the basics and, and actually model a couple of vulnerability patterns like missing hosting verification when, 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 uh, checking an SSL, um, uh, connection, for example, and other vulnerability categories in just three hours. So <laughs> I, I don't know, maybe myself, I was not able to do that back in my college days, but these new generations are smarter <laughs> than we were. They're going crazy. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I think we gone through most of, uh, all of my questions. Is there anything I have forgotten to ask about CodeQL that you think is? No, I just want to take the opportunity to invite everyone that is interested into joining our Slack channel. So I will send you the, the invite so you can share it with the audience, maybe. Yes, I will put the link in the show notes. So you will mm -hmm. have the link to the show notes. Just so, cool. That will be great because there is a very friendly community. This is Slack channel and you can ask any question. And maybe if this learning curve is steeper for you than these three hours, then you will get a lot of uh, help in this Slack channel. And also uh, remember that there was, there is this Backpanty program that we are kind of uh, promoting because I think it's a great win-win situation where you contribute uh, queries and you help a lot of people because those queries are going to be run through code scanning in thousands of thousands of open source repo people that are just developing their own applications projects on their own that they don't have like a security team behind them. So by providing them with this security knowledge um, in the form of a CodeQL query, you are helping a lot of people and this is really fantastic. Is there any cool future CodeQL uh, features that are currently coming up that you're excited about? Probably the one that I'm most excited about are still not public in the roadmaps, so I cannot comment on them. Okay. But there are exciting things in, in CodeQL world that are coming, hopefully very soon, that, that yeah, will make analysis and, and modeling libraries and, and code much easier for, for people, for developers especially. That's awesome. And how do all, all our listeners keep up what you're doing? You have so, uh, well, and how is the best way well, to it, talk to you on the internet? So if, if you want to reach me in social media, my handle in Twitter is Pondester, so PWN Tester. And I'm not very active on Twitter, but I read every day. So even though I'm not posting a lot of stuff there, um, just from time to time, um, you can reach me, send me a message there and I will read it. And yeah, that's basically the social media than the social network that I use the most. Also, you can reach me through this Slack channel as well. And if you want to follow the GitHub security lab as well, you can follow uh, GH security lab in, in GitHub or visit our website in uh, securitylab.github.com. Awesome. We will have all that link in the show notes. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time with me today. And thank you for letting us know about CodeQL. I'm, I'm really interested. I'm going to go and write some queries and, um, yes. Thank you for coming on Hector. No problem. It was a pleasure. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode and I'll see you in the future.